Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today's episode 225, and we're going to be interviewing Josh. How you doing, Josh? I'm doing well. How are you, Jim? I'm doing well. Doing well. I'm ready to do this. So let's dive in and get started. Tell me okay. about your childhood and growing up. How was that? I had a very great childhood. Um, I have two very loving parents. They've been married for 56 years. Uh, I have two older sisters. Uh, they are nine and 11 years older than me. So I was kind of like brought up as an only child. My, you know, ever since I remember it's, uh, you know, it's basically been me and my mom and dad. So, um, but I have loving sisters. They, they've supported me um, all throughout my life. Um, two wonderful brother-in-laws. Uh, they've been married. Uh, both, both of the sisters have been married for over 20 years. So yeah, it's been, it was a really good childhood. Uh, I did very typical stuff, uh, played sports, uh, was involved in, and in, with my friends, uh, had a good group of friends and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was very typical for, uh, you know, central Minnesota, smaller town, you know, high schooler, uh, yeah, nothing really, nothing really out of the ordinary, really. So there were no signs or anything of the, what, what was later to come in life? No, no. Um, you know, it was just very typical. Um, I had a very good childhood. I, I can say that with all certainty. You know, I my family was, you know, upper to middle class. Um, you know, I always had everything I, I needed and wanted. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't anything that would be a typical um, indicator that I, I would be using uh, drugs down the line. Uh, my parents were both uh, very clean people they never really drank uh neither one smoked never did drugs um so yeah there wasn't any any signs that i would end up the way i ended up yeah that's good though i mean it's very unfortunately it's very rare to hear that in our uh community so to speak a lot of times i, I hear the horror stories so <clears throat> you did good in school and all that you said you had friends and yeah i had uh, you know <clears throat> I was a straight B student. Uh, okay. You know, nothing, nothing special. I mean, I, I just did what I had to do in order to stay eligible to play sports. Um, you know, I got, I got accepted into uh, a university, a state university in Minnesota, and uh, uh, went to a, a junior college to play hockey instead of going to the the state college. Um, so, I mean, it, the grades were they didn't really mean a lot to me. Um, I didn't really have high aspirations to like become a doctor or anything. So I was just, uh, yeah, I was very focused on sports. So B's got me to the point where I could play. And uh, I, I feel like I probably underachieved in, in the grades department, but you know, that just didn't, didn't, wasn't that important to me. Yeah. So at what age were you first ever introduced to any type of drug or alcohol? Well, I started, I, I was introduced to alcohol and cigarettes at 13. Um, By it who? was very, um, a cousin. Okay. Cousin and friends um, that were just a little bit older than me. And, um, you know, I, I actually moved from the city's area down by Minneapolis up to the northern uh, central Minnesota area into a smaller town. And, um, it, you know, that was in seventh grade. You know, and by eighth grade, I had, uh, I had, uh, I had drank, I had drank to the point of, you know, getting sick. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was fairly young. I mean, but, but at the same time, I don't think it was way out of the ordinary for, for my area, I guess, I guess, you know, that's all I can speak upon, but, um, started drinking with friends quite a bit when I got to high school. And then, uh, I think it really started escalating to drinking every probably every weekend when I was on the varsity hockey team um, as a sophomore. Do you um, remember what it felt like the first time you ever used? Yeah, I what it felt like to me, because the reason I mentioned the moving to a different school was that I really felt, um, you know, alone. I felt like I wasn't accepted. And um, when I would when I would drink, I would, I ended up with a new set of friends, you know, like the, the people that would do, you know, the partying on the weekends. And, um, that was, that was where I felt 
that acceptance when I would, when I would drink or when I would party, you know, it was, it was that I was back in, you know, I was in a cool group again and uh, it felt, you know, pretty good. You know, it, it gave me that, that confidence to be in a group that I had been trying to get into, you know, trying to be accepted. And then when I started to, um, to experiment more with, with alcohol, um, that's where I ended up getting that reassurance. So it was about making friends and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's pretty much the, I mean, it wasn't direct, but it's pretty much the definition of peer pressure. You're doing it to try to right. get in. Yeah. <laughs> because I, like I said, I, I was, I had struggled for, for, you know, at least two years with trying to fit in uh, with, with a group of friends, my age. Uh, I had neighbors and, and, for, you know, friends from the neighborhood that weren't all my age uh, and they were close friends, but I didn't really fit into the, to the in group until I really started to drink. So how heavy was your drinking during high school? You know, it was, I mean, looking back, it was probably pretty heavy. You know, at the time, I didn't think I was drinking any more than anyone else. Um, but there again, I was around the people that drank. I just assumed that everybody drank, you know, that, but then I didn't realize that I was in a class of, you know, 250 kids. And I was basing that off of like the 60 that, you know, I would, I would hang out with, but little, little to my knowledge, there was a, there's a big group of a majority of them that didn't do what I was doing, but I didn't consider wanting to be a part of the other group. You know, the other group didn't play sports concentrated on grades, um, you know, we're, we're part of like, uh, you know, other, other groups in the high school, like uh, FFA or, or, you know, like a debate team, things like that. I, I had no interest in doing that. And so, you know, when you were an athlete, uh, it seemed to be more prevalent to be using alcohol. So you were pretty much trying to fit in with the culture. Yeah, I would say so. And then, then once I fit in, then it was just normal for me. Um, you know, it was normal to to figure out where where the next party was or what we were going to do on the weekends. And um, you know, it was just that I was in that group. You know, then then it became normal. And uh, so I don't even know if it was necessarily fitting in at that point. It was just that's the way it was. And uh, you know, it felt good to be a part of that it was a part of something, you know, not only was a part of, you know, the, the hockey team, which was what my main, uh, main sport was that felt really good to be accepted in there. But then on top of that, to be, um, to be out partying with other people that looked up to the hockey players, you know, that was, that was one of those, another form of acceptance and, and status, you know, um, later down the road, I'd figure out that I always needed, this pat on the back or this acceptance that I was good or that I was popular in order to feel good about myself. And I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, down the road, I look back and that's, that was very true. Yeah. I mean, it's a form of fitting. We all have that feeling, I think. I think it's just natural human beings to want to fit in somewhere. Yeah. So do you remember, might be a silly question, but do you remember like actually how much you would drink? Like, would it be six beers? Would it be 10 beers? You know, I think the, the standard was about eight. Okay. You know, like that was about my tipping point, I think. You know, if I had any more than eight, it was going to be a rough go. You know, like uh, it was going to be tough mornings and it was, and, you know, unfortunately back then I drove, you know, that was the other thing is that, I felt like I had no problem driving when I had eight. Um, you know, if I was staying at a place uh, or if I didn't have to go home or drive anywhere, uh, then I'd probably let loose and I'd get closer to 12, 14 beers. And then, then once hard liquor started coming in, um, that's when it really started to escalate to where I would get very drunk, you know, blackout type drunk and uh, getting sick, puking, stuff like that. But I really never looked at it as like it's uh, it was a sign or it was something that uh, was abnormal because there was always somebody that was known as that. You know, 
that night while somebody else did it or you know there was always somebody that was doing it and you know looking back it probably was i, I was probably the one that was doing it more often than others you know getting to that point so when did hard liquor get introduced into the mix it was later high school probably junior senior year oh so you're still that young yeah but i didn't like the taste of it i just like the effects of it you yeah know, me that, too i was a drinker yeah. and i used to i used to hold my breath so i didn't taste it at first right yeah because it does it's harsh oh you know, yeah even, even the beer would be you know considered not good to me i didn't like it necessarily it wasn't for the taste i wasn't drinking it for the taste exactly i was drinking for the for the effects and if it didn't you know yeah, same thing here. I would definitely drink just for the effects. I mean, I yeah. I was an alcoholic who hated the taste. <laughs> I mean, unless you made like a drink, like a mixed drink that's, you know, good to taste. But other than that, straight alcohol is disgusting. Yes. Yeah. I found that out quick. Yeah. Yeah. But yet we drink it. Yeah. And I think the one that I really drank quite a bit was 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 whiskey. You know, I drink, I mix it, you know, whiskey Me cokes. That was, that was, uh, the one that I leaned on quite a bit when I was younger. I switched to vodka later on in my life. That, that was the that was the go-to, but it was it was definitely there was a tip, you know, I, I always went with the uh the theory uh beer before liquor, never been sicker. Uh, you know, silly before beer and you're in the clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd always get that base of beer. And then and then switch to the liquor. Oh, I was the garbage can. I didn't have any rhyme or reason. I just drank what I could. Yeah. But I mostly, like you said, went for the liquor only because it was a it was less drinking and more effect. Right. Instead of drinking an entire beer, I could just do one little shot and have the same effect as one beer. Yeah, and then <clears throat> you know that it was quick. You know, if you did. If you did shots, you were gonna get you were gonna get there quicker. Yeah. Um, and you know, ultimately, I I didn't like the taste enough to really want to you know enjoy it. You know, like just sit back and have a few beers and let it let it just. If I was drinking, I was drinking to get drunk. You know, there there was a lot of people that would just drink to be social. Yeah. Um, I wasn't one of those. I, I was I was the one that wanted to play drinking games and you know beer bongs and you know things like that. So what'd you do once you graduated high school? You went to uh, uh, junior college, you said, and you were playing hockey. Yeah, I went to junior college, majored in hockey, and uh, uh, my grades showed that. Uh, I didn't I didn't really get much out of that first year. Uh, then I moved back to my hometown and started going to school at a junior college close to there and didn't have hockey. And then I started coaching hockey. Um, so as soon as I started, stopped playing, I started coaching, which is what I did for the next, well, over 13 years. You did it on the side from, I, I was doing, yeah. Coaching. Um, it would be the youth. And then I, then I ended up, I ended up at St. Cloud state to get a teaching degree. And I did, and then I was a, a social studies teacher and a head high school coach. So once I got back to my hometown and, and realized I wasn't going to play anymore, I started coaching, and that's what that's what made me want to be a teacher. So I, I you know, I just focused on that. Um, I, I did, you know, lead a little bit of the like the college life that I'm thinking was living in the dorms. I never did that. I, I lived at home and was, uh, you know, doing junior college work and then, and then working on the side. I, I, a lot of my jobs were like at the arena and working as a, you know, somebody that Zamboni the ice or things like that. Um, so I, I focused on school and after my first year, I ended up getting pretty good grades. And then that all that transferred to St. Cloud State where I was able to go on and, and get my teaching degree and now uh, i did spend seven years in college to get a four-year degree so i 
it wasn't like I was uh, really focused on school, but you know, in time it, it worked out and I, I enjoyed my time in college. I mean, there was a lot of partying in college. I, I mean, I lived with high school friends and when you live with your buddies, you know, there's four of us. It was easy to, you know, when we had a house, it was easy to throw a party and uh, invite, invite not only our old high school friends, but our college friends and our friends that we met at, at our jobs. And, you know, I just did a lot of things. Like I worked at the baseball fields in, in St. Cloud where I, and there was a big group. It was baseball fields and a golf course. And everybody that was hired there was either a former hockey player or a current hockey player, um, some baseball players, but all athletes. And, and we all had the same interests, you know, and work hard, play hard, and then, you know, go to school and, and you know, get it done. And that's, that's the way it was for, oh, I'd say until I was 23, um, you know, and I was, I still had, at that time was, you know, him and Han between business and, and teaching. And then I did eventually just switch my major to teaching. And uh, that's when I, I met uh, a girl that ended up being my wife. And that helped slow things down a little bit. Not a lot, but it did definitely result in me being a little more, um, a little more careful with how much I was drinking. Um, but that sure didn't end it for me. I mean, I was still drinking quite a lot. Um, and that's when, that's when I started to, to dabble in cocaine. And uh, actually, I was dabbling in cocaine before I met my future wife. But uh, after I met her, that's when I, that stopped pretty, pretty fast. So how much would you drink? Was it daily? Yeah, I mean, it was at least five days a week. Um, we lived, we lived very close to a bar. It wasn't, it wasn't like the downtown bars. It was just like a little uh, neighborhood bar. And uh, we would be there almost every night, you know, playing golden tea or playing pool or throwing darts. There was always, uh, you know, meal specials or, or like burger specials. We, that's, that's what I ate. You know, that's what I lived off of. Um, for a while there, it was, was wings. And I, it, every night there was a different bar that had wings deals, you know, it's 10 cent wings or 15 cent wings at the next bar. But that was, that was what my dinners were all the time. And, um, and, you know, always when you go to have wings, you got to stay after to have, you know, about 10 beers and, uh, you know, and then you start experimenting with other drinks, you know, white Russians was one of my favorite drinks. And, you know, it was, it was at least, at least five days a week. Some days it was, we go all week. And uh, well, what, maybe, what's a, just out of curiosity, what's in the white Russian? Uh, vodka, Kahlua and um, Baylor, or vodka, Kahlua and cream. So that was, that was my, that was my drink, but I was always, for some reason, I'd always get real mean when I drank that. That was that was not a drink that people like to see me drink because I would get I would get mean, so I limited that too. But um, I mean, that's vodka. That's when I was drinking more vodka than anything because we drink Red Bull vodkas and you can stay up later. You know, yeah. you didn't have cocaine; you could just drink Red Bull vodkas and be watching the sunrise. You know, and uh, you know. If I was if I was drinking hard, I was I was uh, wanting to, you know, party all night if I could. So. So once you graduated college, what did you do with your life? I, I went on to become a high school social studies teacher and uh, a hockey coach. I coach baseball. I coach soccer. Uh, but my main I was the head coach for the high school hockey team uh, in Fairville, Minnesota. And uh, I got married right before I took on the job of social studies teacher and hockey coach. So my wife and I uh, moved to the town. You know, we're, we didn't know anybody. Um, I was 27, 26, I think, um, you know, and taking over a high school program. And yeah, it was, life was good. Life was really good. Um, you know, my ex-wife was a, uh, she majored in, in health, the, the health field. And so she, she had a job working for uh, health partners 
up in the cities and you know we were about 15 miles away so she would commute i would i would be home um and but when i were coaching hockey i was you know, i'd be gone until 11 o'clock at night you know on game days and you know on, on non-game days i'd be at the arena until seven o'clock at night so um yeah it was really very it was i thought i had achieved everything at that point um i had I had a dream job. I had achieved that dream of becoming a high school hockey coach. I had, you know, a, a teaching job where I was well-respected. I, you know, my first year of coaching, we set records in the school. We won more games than ever. Um, we got to the one game away from the state tournament. Um, you know, we just, we were very good. And, uh, you know, at one point we were like ranked in the top five in state and uh, this is a town that had never been that successful. So I obviously was was receiving a lot of credit. And for somebody that has, you know, some sort of a, a need for praise, it was it was very uh, it filled me up, you know, that it made me feel good. It made me feel like I was worthy. Um, so I wasn't drinking much that first year. I mean, actually, the first two years, I, I, I really didn't drink much maybe on the weekends, maybe, uh, you know, I'd, I'd hook up with some other friends from high school and we'd go have some fun, but, but mainly I was focused on my career and coaching. And, you know, I, I had high aspirations to become like a college coach or a junior coach. And, and it was just, it seemed to be all falling in place. And then, uh, you know, after the first year we bought a house, got a dog, you know, got pregnant, you know, and, and uh, yeah, it was, it was, the life, life was good. And uh, what, what really started me off was uh, at that point, um, after the second year of coaching and teaching, I, I had uh, a neck injury and I was, I was given opiates and uh, ended up becoming addicted to Oxycontin. And that's, that's what really started the downward spiral. Um, I wasn't, the opiates were, were what then started to fill me, uh, you know, it made me feel good. Um, I loved the way uh, it made me feel. And I was, I was starting to spend less time thinking about hockey and more time thinking about my drugs. And uh, I didn't even know it at first that I was so addicted, but I, I was very obsessed with being sure I had enough. And, uh, that was, that was back in 2007, 2008. And then I finally had surgery in 2009. But by that time I had kind of, I had switched schools. I'd, uh, wanted to get to a bigger school. Um, so I switched schools and the year I switched schools was when I was very addicted and I, I would get sick when I didn't have them, um, called in sick a lot. And, you know, my coaching suffered from it. Um, thank God I had, I had good assistant coaches because they kept me afloat. Um, but by the end of the year, you know, even after I had surgery, you know, they, they terminated my contract as a coach. And uh, since they had tied that to my teaching contract, they also terminated my teaching contract. So then I was back to not being able to work. And... Uh, well, not at least at that school. You know, I applied, I applied, I applied. And I just couldn't get any any jobs because there wasn't many social studies jobs. And um, you know, I didn't have the greatest reference from the school I was at last. And and so then that's that's when I got off of painkillers the first time um, that summer. And and then my son my son had been born that that spring. Um, actually, the spring before. I'm sorry the last year I was at the Faribault high school. And so then he was one, um, when I, when I ended up getting clean off of opiates, but then I was out of a job, you know? And so we were, we were kind of stuck. Um, but my wife, my wife's dad had died unexpectedly. Um, and so they lived way up North and we were running up there to take care of her mom all the time. And, since I'd lost that job, we started looking up, up there, up in her hometown. 
and uh, eventually I did get a, a education job. I was I was the director of after school activities and the Boys and Girls Club uh, supervisor uh, in a small town, small northern town. So we moved up there, and then then again life was good. You know, we were back. We were in a place that I wanted to be. I was coaching hockey, not at the high school level, but um, you know I I was. I like being up north. I like that feel. I'm a hunter and a fisherman. Um, I like small town life. And so we were up there and I loved it up there and all was good um, until I hurt my back. And then I got prescribed opiates again, back on Oxycontin. And what kind of effect did that have on your life? You said it started oh, to spiral down. Like what, what how many would you take a day? You know, were you running out of prescriptions? Yeah, it, it was, at first it was, well, it reminded me of the feeling that I got. And so then I started to overuse pretty much right away. And then it was in the manipulation of the doctor, you know, trying, trying to uh, tell him that I, that I ran out or that I, that I lost them or that I destroyed them or, you know, all kinds of lies. And, and it was, you know, two years after I moved there, I was a full-fledged addict. And um, that's when I finally had surgery to repair the, the pain source. Um, I had a lower back fusion, uh, L4 through S1. And after my surgery is when it really, it was really bad. I, 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 was, I was doing things to get more pills when I, when I shouldn't have. I actually ended up forging... Um, or I scribbled out a date that was put on a prescription that said did not fill to until, and I, and I did that. And I ended up getting a charge uh, for a felony. Um, I can't remember what it was. It was a, it was a felony drug charge, really what it was for, yeah. for fraudulently um, altering a prescription. Um, thankfully I had enough backing to where the judge gave me a um, stay of adjudication and um, I was able to stay on probation. Um, that's when I, that's when I got clean and sober for um, the, which I thought was the last time I went to Hazelden, had a lapse, um, ended up drinking because I found if I drank enough, if I drank enough vodka, I could, uh, I could feel the same effects that I felt with opiates, but I hadn't drank a lot of vodka. I was drinking about a 175 a day. Wow. And, and that that's what almost led to uh, my marriage ending the first time. But she took me back. I got sober. Um, I had lost my job at the, as the after-school program coordinator. And I had to start from zero again. So I ended up uh, becoming a para, paraprofessional in a classroom, working with a, a student that had autism. And um, that that was my way of getting back on the ladder. Uh, so now I'm clean and sober. I'm I'm back with my wife, happy. Um, I was doing a really good job, and I ended up getting a teaching job for special ed in the special ed field. I got a special uh, variance so that I could work as a teacher while I was getting my license as a special ed teacher. And uh, it went from being a paraprofessional to a full-time teacher in a town probably about 40 miles away from where I lived. And then I eventually got the job at the high school where I lived. And uh, that was ultimately where I wanted to be. Unfortunately, after two years of sobriety, I, I hurt my back again and went back and got opiates again. And uh, that was just Vicodin, which to me was like taking a tic-tac. But uh, I, if I did enough of them, I, I, could, uh, I could get a high, which I did. Um, but I was able to manage that. I could, I could do two weeks on, on Vicodin and then go through about a four-day period of not feeling very good, then get my prescription at the end of the month. So it was a cycle that I was on. But then about a year after, I didn't want to do that cycle anymore. I wanted to back back onto the oxy oxy train, and uh, then I did, and that's when um, things really started to fall apart. I did hold the job. 
I was leading a double life. I was a head golf coach and, and we went to the state tournament and, uh, four months later, um, I had stabbed myself in the stomach when I was out of, when I was out of pills. Um, I was delusional. I didn't know what else to do. And I felt like I just needed a hospital stay. <laughs> so I stabbed myself as, as, as insane as that sounds. That's, that's what happened. And, uh, at that point, my wife, said that she couldn't do it anymore. And, um, and then, and, and I, you know, over all the years, I, I have come to understand and actually agree that she did the right thing um, because I was out of control and she could never trust me again. So uh, when she left me, I, I really fell off the rails. I, from that point on, that was 2015, I, I couldn't hold a job. I was no longer in the in the education field. I worked for some family friends at a boat dealership. Um, they offered me a, a really solid job, and I, I walked away from that. Um, I started using meth soon after she left me uh, because I found that after after I had that stabbing incident, I I just there was no way I was going to get opiates again from doctors, and I found that they were way too expensive on the street. Um, so I I found that meth would help me with my, cause I didn't have physical pain at that point. I had emotional pain. Where and, did you get the meth? Uh, it was actually the first date I went on after my ex-wife left me. She had meth and introduced um, you to it. Met online. Yeah. Yeah. Because at that time I didn't care. You know, I was willing to do anything just, just to, just to numb the pain, you know, that, because I, I didn't want to get divorced. I didn't want to lose my family. I had two boys. I had, uh, you know, a, a wonderful wife that I did not want to lose, but she was not going to take me back. And once I realized that, that was the case, uh, went on that date, found that I could use meth, and I was, I would, basically, I didn't care. You know, meth made it so that I didn't care. And, uh, and that that's when it really started to go bad. I mean, like really bad. I went from high school teacher to, uh, you know, selling meth and using meth uh, at a really high level, and and eventually started using IV uh, drugs. And uh, so, I mean, it was a, it was a major major alteration in my life you know i i was how'd you get into the iv use again a girl um i met a girl online and she needed a place to stay she was homeless and so i went and picked her up and you know obviously we we found out that each other used meth before i went to go get her you know because that's you want to hang around people that do and and so i went and got her and um, brought her back home and and you know, she asked if it was okay that she did it that way. And I had no problem with it. Um, and I said, I would never do it. But like two days after I picked her up, I was asking her to, to help me use it. So that was, that was in uh, 2016 and uh, the divorce happened or the, when she left me, it was, it was no November of 2015. And by, uh, must have been June of 2016. I was an IV meth user, so it was rapid. So, what did you do? I mean, what would you say was your lowest point? Oh, I have a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know, at one point, I was um, I was nearly killed by a gang. Um, I had been involved with uh, a girl that was had been involved with one of the gang members. And then um, I had won a huge jackpot up at a casino early on that, that summer of 2016, uh, $30,000. And uh, basically that's when I walked away from my job. They comped me a hotel room for as long as it took for me to lose my money back to them. Um, so I was up there for a month and I got to know a lot of the people up there. And um, 
you know, I was giving money away like crazy. And then uh, I started writing bad checks. And one of them was to the girl that I was with. And she got upset, told uh, told the, um, the gang. And uh, her old boyfriend basically set up a hit on me. And, uh, and I went out to uh, pick up another girl um, in an area I shouldn't have gone to. And uh, there was six of those gang members waiting for me. And um, yeah, it, it didn't go well. I, I ended up getting out of there, luckily. Um, I, by the grace of God, I got out of there. Uh, they stole my truck. They tried to run me down with my own truck. But um, yeah, I had uh, both cheekbones were broken. Both orbital bones were broken. Nose was broken. Six ribs were broken. Um, yeah, it was a mess. And that was that was low point number one, you know, and then and then uh, then I ended up in a mental hospital after that because I was I was uh, I told my family what happened, but I told them that I didn't dare go home because I didn't want them to follow me and and, and hurt them. And uh, then when I finally ended up uh, meeting up with a high school friend, he had been in contact with my parents. And so he knew what was going on and he convinced me to go to the hospital because of my injuries. And uh, then that's when they put a hold on me and uh, I ended up, I ended up staying in a mental hospital for two months. And then I ended up going to treatment for two months after that. And uh, that treatment is where I met a lot of people where I was able to um, access meth at a, you know, large quantities and, and then able to sell it and, that was how I how I lived for the next two years. It was really off that. No job, no place to live. I was bouncing around from from one house to the other, and you know, if you had the drugs, people were letting you stay and stick around. So, so that was, uh, you know, and I didn't see my kids for two years. That was probably the that was probably the biggest low point, but it didn't stop me. Um, I ended up. Uh, so I've been to treatment nine times. Um, I've been arrested nine times. Um, I had, uh, at one point, I I was in a jail in North Dakota, and I didn't want to do it anymore. And so I, I told my parents that if they would come bail me out, I would go to Teen Challenge, which is a faith-based uh, recovery program uh, about a half hour from my, where my parents live. And it's a long term, so it's it was a thirteen month program, and and they had been asking me to go to that for a long time, and I just I was just I couldn't do it. And I was like, I got more important things to do. You know, I I was so important at that point in my life. I didn't have thirteen months to give up. When in actuality, I had nothing. You know, I, that was that was uh, what I should have done a long time ago, and um, so I did that. I didn't, I didn't succeed. I didn't graduate the program. I made it 10 months, but then that's when COVID hit. And when COVID hit, um, I was on the downward slide of my treatment. So I was at the point where uh, there's four levels. Um, I was at the end of level three when COVID hit. And at level four, you usually get, you know, a lot of, lot of passes. You know, you get out every Saturday for eight hours. Um, you get a chance to start going to look for jobs. I mean, level four you weren't in the building very much anymore it was more like you were just at a a, a group residential housing situation and i was craving that i needed that because i wanted to get out of the building i wanted to start my life over at that point i didn't want to use drugs anymore but then everything shut down once covid hit not only did i not get to do the passes or get to go out look for jobs we didn't even get to have visitors anymore and it was awful and I didn't handle it well. I became a, I became, well, I, one of the things I learned about myself was that there's, there are thermometers in the, in the world and there's thermostats in the world. And I'm a thermostat, you know, I can set the temperature of any room and um, I was a leader in there. And when I, when I went South, you know, they could see that the whole, the whole treatment center was going South because of me. And um, so they finally just discharged me. They didn't kick me out. They discharged me. So I always say I got a dishonorable discharge from Teen Challenge. Um, but that, you know, thankfully that that relationship has um, 
has been mended and I'm actually going there and speaking on a regular basis now. So, but that was 2020 and I got out. Um, I, I don't like saying get out. That's like I was in jail. I, I was dismissed from the program. And so I went back home, lived with my mom and dad, started working again, uh, was clean and sober. And then I realized that life was boring. And so I went back um, and started using again. And that, um, that was pretty quick. That, that happened pretty quick because I also made a lot of uh, friends in that treatment center. And when, when you're in a 13-month program, you don't get there by smoking pot on the weekends. I mean, this is, this is a lot of people that, that have been to the bottom a lot of times, you know, that, that their lives were completely out of control. Like, like they were looking, there's a lot of guys looking at long, long prison sentences. They were able to get to teen challenge um, for rehabilitation rather than being sentenced and being adjudicated guilty for whatever crime they had and they were allowed a second chance. And so when you've got a 60, cause there's 60 guys in there, you have quite a few people that have been really deep into the drug world that have a lot of connections. And as soon as I started, to, uh, when I got out and I started using again, I reached out and found it's very easy to get a large quantity and very easy to get enough to start selling again and be able to supply my, or to feed my habit, you know, to keep me going. And, uh, and that probably leads to the, the ultimate rock bottom was um, March of 2021. So about a year after COVID hit, I, I had fallen asleep behind the wheel um, on a freeway. And I was going about 70 and I hit a school bus that was being towed and it just pulled onto the highway. So it was probably going maybe five, 10 miles an hour. And I was going 70. And uh, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have survived the accident. I shouldn't be walking today. Um, but for some reason I am. And, you know, I know the reason now, but um, I had to go through a lot during that period of, of rehabbing that. And, um, and I actually was supposed to be on my way to go pick up my son to take him to a hockey game. And well, I was on my way home so I could sleep before I had to go take him home or take him to the hockey game. And during my hospital stay, I had, I had some horrible dreams about, about the accident. Uh, I had the L1 burst for fracture or a burst fracture of the L1 vertebrae. So they had to do emergency surgery and, and basically fuse my back from my shoulder blades to my belt line. And so um, I was in a substantial amount of pain. I broke my sternum. I broke my collarbone. And I, you know, I ended up having 55 or yeah, 45 stitches in my, or staples in my back. Um, I have about a, a foot long, foot and a half long scar going up my spine. Was when they, that, that's when they did the emergency surgery. And then I had another 10 staples in my head from the accident. And, um, but when the one dream that really was about as hard as it was, was when I, I dreamt that I had killed my son in that car accident, you know, and I woke up and just total chaos, total panic, uh, trying to get a hold of a nurse, trying to find out what happened to my son. And so that, that was really hard for me. Um, I ended up uh, getting a DUI out of it, and uh, I didn't find out until um, about eight months later. And so I'm still, you know, dealing with, I'm on probation, and I, and I got a tox lock, and I, you know, I've had to pay a lot of fines, a lot of expensive stuff for driving. And so I think if you want to ask the rock bottom question, that was probably it. Um, when I, when that happened, you know, I was, I was going so hard and trying to burn the candle at both ends. And, you know, I had been away from my kids for so long. I had missed because the year before that I was in, it was in treatment. So I couldn't really go watch their games. And then that year I was able to go while well, I was high when I was going, um, but I was trying to stay um, functional. And again, the meth was used as a 
for medicinal purposes a lot because it wasn't really getting me high anymore. It was it was just making me forget or helping me forget. And that's that's ultimately what I was chasing. And um, yeah, so that was that was uh, March of twenty one. So when was the, I mean, what was the driving force of you getting sober? When did you say to yourself, I, I can't do this anymore and led you to sobriety? Well, I always say that my recovery journey started when I was in that prison or that jail in North Dakota in 2019. Um, I had, I was actually trying to kill myself the day I was arrested. I was trying to get a hold of heroin so that I could uh, get enough heroin in order to overdose um it was my wedding anniversary i was stuck out in north dakota um i had been there for about two weeks and uh that day june 25th 2019 i wanted to die and so when i went to jail and i was not able to die i i started uh i started reaching back into my faith because i would I was brought up a Christian. I had a strong faith. I believed in God, but for the the three years previous to that, I I had, was angry with God. I didn't want anything to do with God, and and at, and at that point, um, I asked God to take over. I couldn't do it anymore. I just said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live like this. This is not me. I, I just I really was I was disgusted with myself. And I knew that in order to to change, I wasn't going to be able to do it on my own. I needed I needed that faith, and so I think that's when I really started that recovery journey. Now I did have that that long relapse right before my car accident that was about four months long, but that again I was after I had been discharged from Team Challenge and I was angry. Um, I was white knuckling it for four months after I got discharged. Um, but then finally I was just like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm still, i still was not grieving my, the loss of my marriage. I was still angry at my ex-wife. I was still angry at the world. I had major resentments. Um, I was just saying I was okay. You know, even though I wanted to not do that anymore, deep down inside, I had this just awful feeling about myself, about, people around me about God. And, and so then when I went back, I, I realized that I wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. I didn't have to be, I didn't have to be sad. That was the emotion that I was truly running from is, uh, is sadness and, and grieving. And I had tried some uh, mental health therapy a couple times. I just didn't want to do it. I knew that, you know, I always, I always would say, try to explain to people that, you know, when you're depressed, you go into the doctor and they say, here's some Prozac and you'll feel better in about a month. You know, it takes a while for this drug to really take hold. And I'd say, you know what? I can, I can take and put methamphetamines in my veins and I'll feel better right now. I, I, I just don't understand the concept. I didn't have any patience. I didn't want to wait that long. So it was easy for me to just go back out and get it. If, if it came to the point where I, I wasn't able to handle the, the sadness, you know, my, my ex-wife had found somebody new and they were living together and uh, it was very hard for me. Uh, I don't blame her for that. She, she needed to move on with her life. And, uh, but at the time I was very angry and I was angry that she gave up on me. Um, and that anger was not, was not deservedly going towards her that anger really deep in me was was at myself for for screwing up such a wonderful opportunity what a wonderful wife wonderful family wonderful career and i just had done everything to, to just throw it away and and i was well and i was angry at the doctors and i was angry at purdue pharma i was angry at you know the treatment centers that didn't help me before and uh I just found that it was easier to just go back to meth. Even though I didn't want to, I just was really determined to get away from the, 
the feelings I was going through. And that's the one thing I've, in all the time now that uh, after that accident, I've, I've worked with, with addicts, uh, those stuck in, re in, in addiction and those in early recovery, I would work with them about understanding what it is that we were doing it for, why, why we were actually going to use versus to, to find sobriety. And that's when I really started to examine what it was that I was running from. And the only way I figured I could, I could beat this was to, to ask God for help, understand that God forgave me the minute I did it. And then, start working on forgiving myself and that's when that's when the light bulb went off in my head really was when i started forgiving myself and then i started to realize that i don't have to hinge my my worthiness on whether or not somebody forgives me it didn't have to ha come from my ex-wife i didn't have to have her take me back in order to be sober i i could do it because i was worthy and and that's what I worked on for the last, I've been working on for the last two years, basically, you know, a year and 10 months or so. And yeah, I mean, it's been, it's, it's been a journey, but you know, you learn a lot about yourself when it comes to why, why you did it. Why, why did I do all that I did? And uh, learning some of that has helped me forgive myself. It's not like escape. It's not a scapegoat. Uh, I did. I I did what I did. I I accept that, and I I I'm not going to forget it, but I'm going to forgive myself, and I don't have to live in shame anymore of what happened, because honestly, I believe that this is what the path of God wanted me to go on. Now I'm my my career goal now is to be uh, somebody who's working directly with families or those stuck in addiction to get them the help they need. In order to do that, I had to walk that. You know, I had to go through all those years of hell that I did so that I could understand better. And uh, that's that's where I feel like now I'm a much better person than I ever was, even before I started using drugs. I'm I'm more I have more empathy, I have more compassion, and I have more passion for what I what I want to do. And and I, and I now consider all of those years, all of those decisions, those jail stays, those treatment stays, they're all a blessing to me. That, that's, that I, I know more about myself because of them. And how long have you been sober now? Uh, it's been, I'm not really big on dates. It was about a year and a here two months ago or something, I had, a, okay. I had a lapse. I had a lapse, you know, in that area. Um, it was short lived. It was, it was nothing substantial. I, I, I've been working with. Uh, I, I just got my certification to become a peer recovery specialist. Um, somebody that they call them recovery coaches too, but somebody that comes alongside somebody that's looking for um, sobriety. And the one thing we talk about is that there's so much shame in in the reusing. You know, the that's the term that that they're going with now. Not a relapse; it's a reuse. And uh, you know, I'm I'm a big supporter of the Alcoholics Anonymous program, the Ad, uh, the Addicts Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, all of those. Um, I just don't put a lot of stock in you know, the years, the days, the months. Um, my recovery journey began on June 25th of 2019. And I've had some bumps in the road, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, lose sleep over, over a couple use, use periods over that time because I didn't go, I didn't, I'm not still in it. You know, I may have, I may have dipped my toe back in the water, but I didn't, I didn't fully go into it and deep down in my heart, I wanted to be sober. And then June 25th, 2019, that was the first time that happened. And um, so when it comes to sober time, uh, I believe that over the last, uh, 
what is that, three and a half years, I've had so much sober time versus uh, using time, you know, maybe four and a half months of really using time out of uh, 40 months, maybe. So maybe 10% of it. And, and so I don't, I don't really consider um, using for a weekend um, as something that disqualifies me for my recovery journey, you know? Um, and that's different with everybody, you know, that's, and, and one of the messages, one of the reasons I, I want that to be known so much is that I've known so many guys and girls that had substantial sobriety and they drank one weekend and it made them spiral so bad and it ended up being a two-year relapse because they were so ashamed of the fact that they used once and i i want to try and change that uh narrative so that people don't feel like they have to be ashamed of themselves if they have a slip and that's important to me because part of why i didn't stop in 2020 and 21 before my accident was because I didn't want to admit it. Um, I had admitted it to some other my friends, but I was afraid to admit it to others because I felt like others were just going to look at me and go, well, that's, that's Josh doing Josh again. Um, and so, so yeah, long story short, I, I, you know, it's over a year now, but I don't, uh, I don't think that that last one really should count in a way, you know, it's, it, it doesn't define me, I guess, but at the same time, I shouldn't be afraid to say, you know, that's just how long I have. Um, because to me, it doesn't matter. Uh, I just, part of the reason why I, I hesitate on the, on the actual time is because I don't really know. I didn't, it didn't mean that much to me, you know, when I used last, it didn't, it wasn't, like you said, it was that, when did you really stop, want to stop using? That's yeah. the date fix in my head. You know, that's the date where, where my life changed. And that's why I, you know, I do a lot of work for Teen Challenge because I, I credit them for changing my life. You know, they planted seeds in me that about how to live sober, about the forgiveness process that never had been in my life before. And so it was easier for me to, if I did use to turn, you know, turn back. And that's partly what I want to convey to people is that it is I'm not giving people the free pass to go back out and use because I was miserable when I did. That's how I tell people, you know, after you, after you've made this commitment to be sober and you go out and you try and do it again, the party's over. Because once you've really changed your mindset and you go back out there and try to use again, it's no fun. You constantly are beating yourself up. And then you use in order to get through that part of beating yourself up. And it's a vicious cycle. So, you know, when I'm working with guys, I, I tell them that. You know, I tell them that, that this is what will happen once you've already made that commitment to yourself. It's just not going to be any fun. And, and I'm not the only one that's gone through that program and has tried to go back out and use again. Um, every one of us say the same thing. It's no fun. It's, it's just, it, it really is that, for me, it was that piece of being bored and then using and then being so ashamed of myself that I would stay using because of it. So... I don't know. That's a long answer to a very basic question. So I apologize for that. No, no apologies necessary. I appreciate everything you've uh, opened up to us about. So almost at the end, let me ask you one last question. Do yeah. you have any advice for people watching and listening? I, this is what I, I say a lot. As I just say, don't ever give up. And that is a message to both family and those stuck in, in use is that I was loved through my addiction. My family never stopped loving me. And if it hadn't been for that, I would have killed myself a number of years ago. Uh, 
so many times it's easy to to stop to forget that inside there is that person you once loved or if it's yourself inside of there that's there's that good person you once were um you're you're not a bad person you're you're being uh basically possessed by a chemical and it's making you into somebody you never intended to be you know we all at one point had a childhood where we we're able to go out and have fun, throw the ball around, you know, play games with friends, watch cartoons, you know, love our parents, be loved by, by people. Um, there are some that were unfortunate to not have that, but they still were a child. You know, they still were an innocent person. And inside of all of us is still that person. And we're worth it. You know, that, that's the thing is that I, I always tell people, we are worth it. I mean, a lot of times, you know, the, the climate is changing a little bit on how people look at addiction. But for the longest time, we were we was looked at like we were choosing to be bad people. And that's not the case. Nobody wants to do what, what I've done. You know, I, I just, you're, you're sick. You, you know, it's, it's like that old saying in AA, you're not, you're not, uh, bad getting good you're sick getting well you know that's that's the thing is that if you have somebody who's in can has cancer and they're going to do treatment uh, th that's that's them taking their life back and and nobody looks at them in a negative light but for an addict we end up having this you know this stigma that that keeps us looking at like what's wrong with us and if I could just do one thing for all those that are stuck in addiction, I would just say, never, never give up and don't stop loving. Love is what take, love is what defeats addiction. Love from others, love from God, loving of self, knowing your worthiness. And if you, if you're a, a family member who's watching this because you have a loved one stuck in addiction, you don't know what else to do. Send them a message not shaming them, not telling them they need to get help, but just telling them that you love them, you're thinking about them, and if they ever want to talk to you, your phone's always on. If they want to go get lunch, go buy them lunch. You're not enabling if you just get them some food. You know, that shows love. And that's what, that's what when we're stuck in addiction and alcoholism, that's what we lack. And, uh, and I hope that that people will will take that and run with it because it's very important. I know it was for me, and I'm sure everybody else that has gone through the, the hell of addiction would say the same thing, that a loving message or an act of kindness is what kept them alive. And that's that's really what I want to be, is I want to be that that light of hope for those that are that are stuck in it and those family members that are stuck in it because the family members need to see that there is hope out there. And I, and I want to live that hope out for people. And so that people look at me and say, I want that. I want, I want to get to that point. And that's now my driving force that my kids, my girlfriend, you know, my parents, all of that is what, what drives me now is because I realized that they loved me through this, through this journey that I was on and that I am on, you know, I'll always be on this recovery journey. And that's used to be a real negative thought in my mind, but now I'm, I'm excited about it. So. That's great. Glad to hear you're doing so well. Thank you. So did you have anything else that you wanted to throw in here? No. Um, you know, other than other than anybody that's stuck in addiction, you know, don't be afraid to reach out your hand. You know, I, I would be I'm always I'm always wanting people to reach out for me to me so that I can help um, find a meeting, find somebody that is has gone through what you've gone through. Find a, a, a somebody that's in, the you know, if you have mental health problems, ask for help and they will help you. And uh and build your worthiness back up. And uh, don't forget that people do love you. And that's important. 
Absolutely. I mean, love, love drives everything. I mean, I think if you don't have love in your life, it's a very empty life. Yes. Very yeah. much so. And that's what happens when you study. When you love the drug more than the others, it's a dark place. Very dark place. Yeah. All right, my friend. So hang tight for me. I'm going to wrap the show up here. And for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. We're on all social media, such as Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Um, as I say, you name it, we're probably on it. I also suggest checking out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There's plenty of free resources as well as free literature. Also, Addicts Anonymous has a book coming out due out next February or this February, hopefully by the mid to uh, late February. It's called Addicts Anonymous, Our Stories. I write on a number of topics as well as a collection of people's stories. So that's all we have for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time.